Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you take this word, and in the moments we have together this morning, would you change us by them? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul David Hewson, who um, most of you know as his stage name, is the lead singer for U2, Bono. And in a recent interview he had with... Um, Micah Assayas Bono had this to say. Look, the secular response to Christ's story always goes like this. He was a great prophet. Obviously, he was a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah or Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius. But actually, Bono says, Christ doesn't allow you to say that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, no, I'm not saying that I'm a good teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, 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 please, just be a prophet. We can handle that. You're being a bit eccentric, Jesus. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey, and we can handle that. But don't mention the M word because you know what that means. We're going to have to kill you. And he goes on and Jesus says, no, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from all these creeps. But actually, I am the Messiah. And at this point, Bono says, everyone stops talking and they start looking at their shoes and they think, oh my gosh, this guy's going to keep saying this. And so what you're left with is either... Jesus, who is the Messiah, or he is a nutcase. I'm talking, Bono says, nutcase on the level of Charles Manson nutcase. And I cannot believe that the entire world has been changed by a nutcase. And so the implication, of course, that Bono was trying to make is Jesus is indeed no nutcase. He is the Messiah the Savior of the world who has come. Who do you say Jesus is?
And with that answer that you have in your mind, are you prepared to meet him? Listen, the Messiah means anointed one. It means it was God's special anointed king who was to come. He was the appointed savior of all of Israel. And the Jews knew he was coming. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, Genesis 49.10, Deuteronomy 18.15, places like Numbers 24.7, Psalm 2.7, Psalm 22.1, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9. You know, you've seen these passages throughout your life if you've been in the church. Isaiah 53. You see, you know, uh, Micah 5.2. You see Malachi 4.15. You see Zechariah 6.2. It's shot all throughout the Old Testament. The prophecies concerning Jesus. In fact, you just heard Maggie read one. The one, the Lord who is coming, the branch who is going to be our righteousness. All the Jews knew he was coming, but very few recognized him. In fact, the ones you would expect to recognize Jesus coming, they totally missed the memo. They were the religious and they were the priests and they were the kings. The Pharisees completely missed it. And in the story that Bo read for us in Luke chapter 2, who is it that the angel comes to to announce that the Savior has come? To lowly shepherds. What do we have to learn from the shepherds? What could they possibly teach you and me in 2014? Well, let's lower your eyes to the text and let's look. Here is what we can learn as we look at the gospel story through the eyes of shepherds. Are you ready? Here it is. The lowly see that God's promised son has come. The lowly See that God's promised son has come. Every annual Christmas pageant is incomplete without a band of gunny sack shepherds who are frightened by the prospect of the angel. They run off to see the baby in the manger and overjoyed, they return to their flocks shouting to the rooftops, he is here, the Messiah has come. And then the exit stage left and the lights go out. Every Christmas pageant is incomplete without these bands of gunny sack wearing children who often play the shepherds. But we very seldom give more than a moment's thought to their role in the original Christmas story. About 1800 BC, to be a shepherd was to be somebody. Shepherds began with a very noble purpose. They, were, they had a high calling. They watched over as God's vice regents, his animals. They were the ones who tended the flocks. They were the ones who were out there all day doing the hard work of making sure that the wolves didn't come and attack the flock. In Genesis 4, Jabal is called the father of those living in tents and raising livestock. And in nomadic societies like they had back in 1800 BC, whether you were a Sikh or you were a slave, you were a shepherd. It was just assumed that you were a shepherd. And it was a good thing to be a shepherd. Even um, Jethro, the priest of Midian, right? Moses' father-in-law, he even employed his daughters to be shepherdesses. The wealthy sons of Isaac and Jacob, they tended flocks. And until Israel went into captivity in Egypt, 
Being a shepherd was a very, very noble thing, but something very strange happened when they went to Egypt because you know what? The Egyptians were not shepherds. They were not ranchers. They were farmers. They were agriculturalists. And so whenever Israel went into captivity for 400 years in Egypt, the Egyptians despised shepherds. And so shepherds began to be few and far between. They began to be the scum of society. They began to be the lowest ones on the pecking order. And so around 1400 BC, you have Egypt trying to root out everybody who kept flocks because the goats and the sheep would ruin the agricultural benefits of the lower Nile region. In fact, the Egyptians hated shepherds so much that their Arab enemies, their Arab enemies they called the despicable shepherds and they were the ones that came in and they took over the lower Nile region and the Egyptians absolutely hated them. So much so that when Jacob's parents, right, or Joseph's father and his brothers come to Egypt, Joseph says, hey, hey, listen, you're gonna go in front of like the, the, the clean shaven Pharaoh in his court. They don't like beards, so, heads up, say you're a keeper of livestock, but do not say you're a despicable shepherd. Friends, shepherds were the lowliest of the lowly for much of the Old Testament. The lowly are the ones that see that God's promised Savior has come. When David became king, do you remember King David? When David became king, just at the beginning of the second millennium, B.C., Shepherds enjoyed a little momentary um, upward mobility because David was the shepherd king. But then soon after David died and Solomon took his place, shepherds began to find their lowly position once again. Throughout the prophets, we talk about the shepherds in demeaning terms. Zephaniah says that the sheep herders symbolized judgment and social desolation. Amos contrasted his high calling as a, shepherd, as a prophet with his low upbringing as a shepherd. And some shepherds undoubtedly earned their poor reputation, but some were just the victims of the social injustice of the status symbols of the day. The lowly see God's promised Savior has come. In the Mishnah, that is the, the Jewish writing of the Old Testament oral tradition and law between Malachi and Matthew, describes shepherds as incompetent. There's a passage that says, you cannot help a shepherd if he falls into a pit. Don't waste your time. Keep walking. One scholar on the subject documents the fact that shepherds were deprived of all civil rights to buy wool or milk or a kid. That is not a child. It's a, it's a baby goat. To buy a kid means it was forbidden because it was assumed that if a shepherd sold you those goods, that he stole them. They could not fulfill judicial office. They could not be admitted in court as witnesses. Do you get the picture? Shepherds were despised people. And in Jesus' time, in the time of Jerusalem, the rabbis asked with utter shock and amazement, 
How can, how can they describe God in the Old Testament in Psalm 23 as the Lord is my what? My shepherd. The lowly see God's promised Messiah has come. The irony of the shepherds in this passage is that they were the last people on earth the religious people would think would get a front row seat. And one of the things you take away from the shepherd passage in Luke is a very simple truth. The reason why so many people are turned away from the gospel in our community is not because of the profligate, licentious living of the non-believers. It's because of the hypocrisy and the arrogance of the religious. Do you remember the story in Luke 15 about the two brothers, right? The prodigal sons. Remember how one son goes off and lives a profligate life. He goes off and he spurns all of his father's inheritance. And he comes back begging for the pods that his father's hired hands would give to the pigs. Remember that story? In that story that Jesus tells, who is it that is supposed to go and get the younger brother? Like the father goes and runs and gets him. But who is supposed to go get the younger brother? The older brother. And the older brother, so consumed with his own sense of self-righteousness in his father's house, for not wanting to have threatened his security, doesn't go get his younger brother. I mean, just last, just last night, I, I met a waitress at Bricktown, and there was a table of about, about um, I don't know, maybe 20 people. It was a big table. It was, the bill was pretty big. And she walked up to the table I was sitting at with one other guy that she knew, and she goes, I just got stiffed my tip. And I looked over at the table, and out walking are some people that are wearing a shirt that have a scripture passage on the back of it from a local church. And it wasn't one of you where I'd have run out there and grabbed you and brought you back in. But, and where it was doesn't matter. The point is that you and I are just as susceptible to that. Friends, the reason, one of the greatest obstacles in a loss of Oklahoma to the gospel is the arrogance of the religious because they don't understand themselves to be lowly. They think that if they're really honest that they have earned God's favor. And Jesus comes into the world and the angel goes to the lowly shepherds to pierce the heart of the religious subculture to say that God goes to the lowly. They are the first ones to see his glory. That's the way it always has been. That's the way it is with you and with me, isn't it? Listen, the way you grow in the Christian life, the way you grow in the Christian life is always first and foremost through repentance. Yes, it is through reading the Bible. That is a fruit of your repentance. Yes, it is through leaving a great tip at a restaurant you're going to go to, may go to even this afternoon. But that is a fruit of repentance. It is saying, God, you have given me so much and you have forgiven me of my sins. And not only that, you have covered me in your righteousness. That I will gladly give generously. I will gladly obey your commandments because they are lovely and that's what you've called me to do. Do you call yourself religious? It's okay if you do. I don't want to use the term in a derogative way. I just want to say, are you a friend of repentance? Repentance.
And do you recognize that it was the religious conservatives of the day who actually missed the memo because they thought they had everything figured out? What can you learn from the lowly shepherds? First, Jesus' coming was an offense to the religious. Flannery O'Connor puts it this way. She grew up in the Protestant South in Georgia. And she said that in her estimation, the greatest threat to the joy of people who went to church in Georgia back in the 30s and 40s was what she calls a Christ-haunted South. What she means by that is that people use, they use religion to avoid Jesus. They want to contour Jesus. They want to put him in a little box. They want to use him for business contacts. They want to use him for social one-upmanship. When Jesus threatens their way of life, they say, no, 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 we don't want that Jesus. We want the Jesus that we created. They were haunted by the real Jesus of Scripture. Are you? The second thing that we learn is that God cares for all people regardless of their social status or their profession. The religious in Jesus' day have faded into obscurity. There are no Pharisees in the the annual Christmas pageants. But the shepherds have a very key role. They were the heralds of the good news. In fact, Jesus calls himself what? I am the great shepherd. And the picture, the metaphor that he leaves with the leaders of the church is not, you're not a CEO of a church, you're not a businessman, you're not a preacher, you, you're a shepherd to my people. The lowly see God's promised Savior has come. You don't just see that Jesus' coming was offensive to the religious. We don't only just see that God cares for all people regardless of their social status. You see that God comes to us not in some kind of mystical, isolated experience, but he comes to us in very concrete ways. Three times in this chapter, Luke mentions the manger, a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. He is pointing these shepherds to a real event in history. He is saying, you go to Bethlehem in the babe that's in the manger. You go to Bethlehem in the babe that is in the manger. He says it again, in the babe that's in the manger. This wasn't just some mystical experience before the stars. They could have had this incredibly religious high, this great spiritual high. But he said, you go and you see the baby in the manger. God comes to us through very concrete events. And it reminds us that he is with his people still today through very concrete events like baptism and seeing the water and feeling the water and the Lord's Supper, which we have every week when we don't have baptisms. He comes to his people through physical events because Jesus was fully man and fully God. He was presented to the world lying in a wooden manger to be rejected by the world hanging on a wooden cross. When Jesus rose from the dead, he taught his disciples for 40 days and he ate fish. He had a real body. It was just like yours and mine, but more. It was a resurrected body but he still ate. He had food. We sometimes think about Jesus as though he's like mystical and spiritual. He he has a body. And he's at the Father's right hand right now, 
interceding for you, praying for you if you're in him. Fourth, you learn from the shepherds that God gives peace to men on whom his favor rests. Our text says, with whom he is pleased. The salvation that comes to the church is not a universal salvation. God comes to a very specific people. The Bible calls these people the elect. And before you get your cannons ready to shoot me for saying that word in public, listen to me. It is shot through the New Testament. The elect people of God are not people who earn their salvation. They're not people who are better than other people. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. God calls Christians the elect in order to remind them of how much God has loved them from the very beginning. In fact, they are so broken that it was God who had to act first in their life to bring them up into a right relationship with God because dead people don't make decisions. Spiritually dead people cannot choose God. Only God is able to raise them up. And it says, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Does his favor rest with you? A lady came up to Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in London in the 1900s and, uh, 1800s and said, uh, Dr. Spurgeon, Dr. Spurgeon, you've preached on the doctrine of election. I want to know, am I the elect? And Dr. Spurgeon looks at her and he says, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? With all my heart, then you're the elect. The doctrine of election that you see through this phrase, with whom he is pleased, is always given to comfort believers. It's never a stick or some kind of mark of one-upmanship to hold over other people because it's the lowly who see God's promised Savior has come. And Christians ought to be the most humble people in the world because you didn't do jack for your salvation. God called you out of his sheer sovereign grace and goodness, and he loves you. That's what the shepherds teach us. One more. Praise and awe is the proper response to God's presence. The shepherds went away in awe of what they had seen. And the right response to us coming to church on Sunday or encountering the living Christ is a sense of profound gratitude that we've experienced this whole week in Thanksgiving. And it's walking out of it saying, thank you that you would love a worm such as me, that you would love me enough to call me to yourself. And friends, we are changed, not by a nutcase who claimed to be a teacher and a prophet, we are claimed by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah of Israel, who the religious totally missed, and who the lowly shepherds had the privilege of declaring the Messiah has come. So as we enter Advent, would you live like shepherds? Because you live under the banner of the great shepherd. The one who didn't just sit idly by while you were being attacked by sin and death. But who gave himself for you. Even died for you on the pasture, as it were. So that you might live. Your great shepherd gives his life for the sheep. 
And the proper response to that is only joy, is only awe, is only repentance because the lowly see God's promised Savior has come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.